Turn your Bibles again to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 6. Tyler let me know ahead of time that the Prezi wasn't showing up, so we're going to see what we can do here. Boom! Nehemiah, chapter 6. Um, we want to come back to a couple of the verses we looked at last week on Resurrection Sunday, um, but use them as they flow directly into chapter 7. Uh, and just see some truths here from Nehemiah that I think are important and profound and easily applicable to our day and day and time. Uh, now, the book of Nehemiah takes a definite turn from this point forward, going forward. So it's not quite halfway through the book or so, uh, but the walls are built. And so I think lots of people, when they think about the book of Nehemiah, they think about the rebuilding of the city walls of Jerusalem. Uh, and yet, over half the book doesn't particularly drive back to that, but it spans out from it. And there's this definite turn that seems to take place from a focus on the building of the external walls around the city to the desperate need for transformation inside the city. And, and we really begin to see this turn happen. We, we had some hints of it in chapter 5, but really from this point forward, it begins to take front row seat. What we discover is that there's a danger level happening inside the city. And, and I, would, I would argue that uh, the, the danger is even more significant than the enemies without. And so now they're having to deal with an, an incestuous or insidious uh, enemy that's now in the city, digging in roots, and is beginning to affect everyone. The city walls are built, but there's still rottenness within. This is the theme that begins to develop, and it's a theme that actually shows up throughout the Bible. Man looks on the outside, but God looks on the... Oh, you're going to tell me better than that. <clears throat> so man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Yeah. We've got this sense that we tend to focus on externals, but, but God tells us the internal is critically important. Uh, we see it as Jesus deals with the Pharisees. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs or whitewashed sepulchers. You're like these tombs that have been cleaned up really good, but they're still full of dead man bones and decay. While Satan and the world are deadly, our flesh is just as deadly, and I would argue even more dangerous. Uh, you can get some distance from the world and from Satan. You're going to have your flesh with you all the time. Your flesh is your unredeemed humanity. Even as a believer, we war against our flesh. That's why one day when we get to glory, we need a new body, uh, completely revolutionized. And so there will be the absence of sin or even the desire of sin. But as of now, we still carry this flesh. Jesus describes at one point in the book of Matthew that God's kingdom, and he's talking about what the church age will be like, where we're living now, will be like a massive wheat field and at night, the enemy of the farmer comes in and he sows tares among the wheat. Tares are this uh, weed that's going to crop up and absorb nutrients from the soil and uh, at some points grow higher than the wheat and block out the sun and so do great damage to the field. And so he's telling us that Satan, one of his tactics, is going to be come into the life of a church and sow unbelievers into the life of the church that everybody thinks are just like us, and yet they do unbelievable damage. And so the immediate response, the understandable response, will be then let's tear the, the tears out. Let's go rip them out. Let's go through the field and, and get rid of them all. And Jesus makes it very clear you're not always going to be able to tell the difference. And so that is a 
terrible proposition. Because sure as the world, you would leave some tares and you would tear out some wheat. And so he says, you're going to have to wait to the end of the age. And so this is why you, maybe you've heard other preachers say this. I think when we get to the judgment day, we'll be shocked at some who are not in and shocked by others that are. And so we can't always tell. And so we have this constant theme in scripture that one of the tactics of Satan is to sow decay on the inside, is to let remaining evil exist. It's, it's to really masquerade as this angel of light. We all think it's okay, but it's not. This is the tactic. And, and so we have all these examples throughout the rest of the Bible of the truth that we see put on display very physically in Nehemiah, of a city with walls built, and yet there is rottenness inside the city. Evil on the inside is every bit as deadly as the evil that's on the outside, but it's far more dangerous. Why? Because we think it's safe. And so we let down our guard. And in that moment, we are duped and we can die. <laughs> and so this war, this battle, what it needs is discernment. It needs the ability to distinguish the difference between righteousness and evil. And so what we're going to see in our verses this morning is how Nehemiah has that discernment and none of the nobles do. And so Nehemiah, as the leader, has to exercise this discernment. He sees the evil. He understands the evil. He puts in safety measures against the evil while the nobles don't see it. And so because they don't see it, they actually become participants with it. And so Nehemiah chapter 6, I'm going to start in verse 15. I'm going to read down through the fourth verse of chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, follow along this morning. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehonan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence, and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid." Now, when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites had been appointed, I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. And so Nehemiah, we have the city, we have the walls, we have the gates. Uh, everyone should understand God has been in charge of this. The enemies even recognize the power of God. This should be a little bit of a no-brainer. We have some safety. 
we come, and even as last Sunday we were coming out of Resurrection Sunday, and we saw how the rebuilding of the walls, even the raising of life from death, pointed us ahead to the resurrection. There is a strong reminder here of the reality that, that while the end of the war is in sight, resurrection has happened, death, hell, and the grave have been defeated, the walls have been, have been raised up from the, the graveyard, really, the, the battles are still going to happen. And we don't get to let, take our foot off the gas. We don't get to let down our guard. And so what Satan and the enemies are now going to do is try to go to the inside. And they're, they're going to try to infiltrate. And we actually see this in the early church. First with Ananias and Sapphira. Later with Diatrophes. Later even with Peter himself when he twists the gospel and Paul has to confront him. Now thankfully Peter repents clearly. But there's always the effort. Of the, he doesn't, the enemy doesn't stop. And so we don't get to stop defending. We don't get to stop pushing for righteousness. Now, we've already heard about Tobiah. You have Sambalot, you've got Tobiah, and you've got this other guy, Geshem. And so Tobiah kind of comes to the front stage here now at this point, and he's the massive threat to the city and the inhabitants of the city, and they don't see it. Nobody but Nehemiah. And so Nehemiah understands there's this massive danger within. Now, in the 2011 horror movie, The Thing, this is not an advocation that you go out and watch The Thing this week, but... In the 2011, it's a remake of a, of a 70s horror movie. The shtick of the movie is this. They find an alien, and the alien takes the form of for a dog at one point, and then people, and it kills a bunch of people. It's a horror movie. And it, but it has the same idea of how do you figure out when you've got a traitor in your midst. The danger is among you. And so one of the things they discover with this monstrous alien, this horror moment, is that it can imitate anything organic, but nothing inorganic. So they realize that, that one guy, that it absorbed this guy, it killed him, it's horrible, but the titanium screws and, and bolt that was in his arm to keep his broken arm together was there. And they're like, oh. And so they get everybody together and they start checking them for fillings because they know this monster would never be able to tell, would never be able to imitate the fillings. They're, they're desperate to find any way because if they don't, they're all going to die. I don't think we approach righteousness and evil with a real awareness of how dangerous it is. I think we tend to play with fire. I think we tend to think things are no big deal. I think it takes a lot sometimes for Christians to realize where the real dangers are. And I think the most dangerous thing in my home is my flesh. And because it's one of Satan tact Satan's tactics, one of the most dangerous things is spending time with people who claim to be saved and they are not. And you are having conversations with them as though they are. It deceives us about the power and the impact of the gospel. It lies to us about what it really means to follow Christ, holiness, and righteousness. It's deceptive to, to us, and it breeds a sense of hypocrisy. People in the movie The Thing are desperate to find out the traitor before it kills them. There's a significant danger here for Nehemiah and the entire city, and the nobles just don't get it. They are deceived. Now, there's a lot of interesting information here for us. The context is victory. The walls have been built. But Nehemiah very quickly informs us of this intense 
danger that's going on here. And so how is it that they're deceived? First of all, these guys see this as a personality issue, not a sin issue. They see Tobiah and Nehemiah's conflict as two people that they maybe love and respect or they appreciate and like, um, but it's personalities why they can't get along. It's not about sin. It's just about some event or, um, you know, every story has two sides and so they just can't seem to get together. And uh, we've had conflict with other people in our lives and so we understand that conflict. And so clearly that is what's going on. I mean, Tobiah has opposed the rebuilding of the wall. He was very clear that he was opposed to them rebuilding the wall. And some of these men that are named that are related to him, and we'll see that as another issue here in just a moment, they actually had participated in rebuilding the wall. So here's the reality of it. Tobiah didn't want them rebuilding the wall, but they're still able to be friends with him. We were able to agree to disagree. And so clearly, Nehemiah can't agree to disagree. Tobiah didn't think the walls should be raised. We raised the walls. Tobiah's still my friend. Why can't Tobiah be friends with Nehemiah? Or better yet, why can't Nehemiah seem to be friends with Tobiah? I can. You know what I bet it is? A Nehemiah problem. They don't think this is about sin. They think this is about two guys that simply can't get along very well. This is, they, 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 they think Tobiah is somebody you can still do business with. That's what it means here in verse 18. When it says many in Judah were bound by oath to him, it means they had some kind of ongoing business contra contractual obligations or responsibilities. They still see this man as someone to work with and to work alongside of. So how have they gotten past the wall building that he was so opposed to? They've lived in the reality you don't agree with everybody on everything. It's okay then. They see it ultimately as the one in this, in this passage, in this book who's righteous about it. They see it as a Nehemiah fault, not a Tobiah fault. Verse 19, they even make a big deal of advocating for Tobiah to Nehemiah. Also, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence. Reported my words to him. These people, these nobles who are deceived, they think this is a peacemaker moment. They think they're being really good friends to Nehemiah and Tobiah by helping them to overcome their differences. Now, here's what's difficult is sometimes that's exactly the role we, we should play. The Bible is very clear. Blessed are the peacemakers. It's very clear that in Matthew 18, if you have two believers and one is sinned against the other, they're not repenting, to bring others into the situation to help them with it. We see it displayed through the apostles as they try to work out various differences at various points in time. Paul and Barnabas even go their separate ways over John Mark, and later Paul wants John Mark to come to him. There was some kind of relational healing that had happened. This is one of the tactics of the enemy. It's to take the wrong medicine and apply it to the wrong injury. This is like you have a broken leg and somebody thinks you need an MRI of your head. And an MRI of your head is great for certain problems, but that's not what you need if you have a broke leg. You need some painkillers and a cast. These guys look at Nehemiah and Tobiah and they say, you know, can't we all just get along here? And they don't understand because they've been deceived. They're duped. They are misreading the problem, and so they are then misreading 
the threat. There's a young man in Pennsylvania some 35, 40 years ago. Both of his parents worked. He was a latchkey kid. They were out working one day. It's a snow day, so he ends up home with his younger brothers and sisters. His parents have been very clear to him about directions, about what he could do, what he couldn't do in order to keep him safe. He goes out for a walk to pick up some milk. There's no milk. They need milk for some cereals just down to the corner store. He also was going out to smoke some cigarettes. His parents didn't know he smoked. They're working hard just trying to put food on the table. And on his way there, a guy pulls up next to him, literally in a panel van, and said, can you help me move some stuff? I'll give you some cash. He goes with him, and he suffered one of the most horrific kidnappings in the United States for well over a week until he's rescued. He didn't see the threat. I'm convinced these guys don't see the threat. They're deceived, and they're deceived because they think this is not a sin issue, it's a personality issue. But it goes on from that, they're deceived because of the relational attachment. Now, we have all these wonderful names, right? Uh, some of, many of which I'm sure I'm butchering. I can't wait to try to read through chapter 7 with all those names. But what this boils down to is a lot of relational connection. I'll, I'll read them again. I'll do my very best um, and try to explain it. Many of Judah were bound by oath to him. He was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era. Now, these guys, it's really important because Era had actually come with Ezra. And so Era had been in Jerusalem and in Atlanta a long time. And so he put, supposedly he was one of the faithful ones that had come back from Babylon. And so when they moved there, just spoiler alert, part of the reason Israel had gone into captivity in Babylon is because of intermarriage with the nations around them and giving into idolatry. So these guys come back after 70 years of captivity, and what's one of the first things they do? Because Tobiah is an Ammonite. They go right back to what they were doing before. I mean, well, you know, we're going to be kind to Error, though, right? Like, he's wrong, and we're going to own it. But I wonder how many of you have said, man, it just feels like God always has to get my attention with a two-by-four. That's not a God problem. That's a me being resistant problem. And to be frank, he never uses a two-by-four anyway. He's really actually very kind and gentle, even in his chastening. But there's just a resistance to the reality here. So he's son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son, Jehohanan, had taken the daughter of Moshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. And so we've got all kinds of intermarriage going on here. There's a relational attachment to this guy. And so that means if they're going to cut off or separate from Tobiah, there's going to be relational cost, and they're not willing for it. It's going to be family discord. They don't want it. Right now, everybody can get together and have a meal together. Uh, we start resisting Tobiah, rebuking him, or worse yet, cut him off. What are we going to do when my grandkid has a birthday? What am I supposed to do when my daughter-in-law needs me? What am I supposed to do when my friend over here is in business with him? What am I supposed to do? This relational attachment. The relational attachments here are more important to them to the, than their relational attachment here. Now, this is risky, so I'm really, really thankful that Jesus said this. He said that following him, you are to love him more than father, mother, sister, brother. He didn't say don't love father, mother, sister, brother. But he is using this as a comparative way to think about affection. Affection. 
And at the same time, he tells us that the gospel comes in such a way to heal relationships. At the same time, he tells us the gospel comes in and it actually takes people that have nothing in common and makes us family. Very few people in this room are actually genetically related to each other. And yet, as believers, we are sisters and brothers. And so the gospel will come and it will divide and it will heal. And in this moment, what they are unwilling for is this. They are unwilling to follow truth if it means it costs them this relational connection. They are misreading the threat as less than the threat to their relationships. Now, why would that be? How could that be? Well, um, we could easily go to Proverbs. In Proverbs, it tells us that part of the nature of when we operate as fools, and I have to use these words carefully because there's certain things, if you just drop these bombs when you're preaching, people like tune out. He just called me a fool. And so it's risky. But the Bible's really cool, that, really clear that fools, our modern-day idiom, they can't see past the end of their nose. They don't think long-term. They sow a field, but they don't reap it, and then they're mad because they don't have food to eat. Why? Because the day for harvest came, and they were too lazy to do it. And they couldn't foresee, then that means in a few weeks, I'm going to be out of food. This is the nature of sinful foolishness, is we can't perceive long-term results very well. See it in the life of a child. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, right? And part of that foolishness, his children do a terrible job of foreseeing long-term results. And so part of our job as we parent them and disciple them is to help them as they mature and as their little brains grow, and as their little hearts grow, and their spiritual sense and a practical real-world sense is to understand long-term threats and risks. And so relational cost is in your face. Long-term cost seems so far away or non-existent. And on top of that, God is so kind and gracious and in our experience, there have been many times that we have made sinful or foolish decisions, and it feels like the cost wasn't that bad. It's like me as a child, my dad telling me, don't do pop wheelies on Miss Hartley's driveway. Easy direction. Son, don't pop wheelies on Miss Hartley's driveway. Miss Hartley's driveway, though, was the premier spot to pop wheelies on my bike. They're literally, it was like, it was like God himself had said, here's a perfect wheelie popping spot. So guess what I did? No shock to you. I stopped and obeyed my daddy. See, I surprised you. Because that's a lie. That's not what I did. I went and I kept popping wheelies, right? And I popped wheelies. And you know what happened? I popped that wheelie. And you know what happened? Nothing. I had a sweet wheelie, I rode it out, and I was getting better and better and better at popping wheelies. I did it every day. Now, I was smart enough 
were devious enough to not do it when my parents were looking out the front windows of the house. This went on for a couple weeks, and I was getting really, really good at it, where I could pop the wheelie and just keep riding on the wheelie. And I kind of had, because I'm a goal-driven kind of guy, I was like, okay, I can make it to this hedge, and then I can make it past the Chen's uh, driveway, and then I can make it past the, this hedge. And I was getting better and better and better, and there came one day, I was riding around, I popped the wheelie, my bike flipped out from underneath me, and at the end of Miss Hartley's driveway was a bunch of gravel, and Steve rode the, rode the gravel on his bare knees for several feet. The only person home was my dad. <laughs> that is what we call a Jesus spanking. I think this is why sometimes we in our foolishness, just like, I don't know, eight, nine-year-old Steve, because the consequence doesn't happen right away, we think there's no consequence. They were unwilling for the relational hurt here, even though it is doing massive damage to the other people in the city, to the leader of the city, Nehemiah, and to their own walk with God. They're duped. Thirdly, because they see it as good deeds versus disagreement. They minimize his sin and they maximize his good deeds. You see it again in verse 19. They spoke of his good deeds in my presence. Now let's just, we don't, we don't know honestly if this is even true or not, because frankly, Tobiah is a liar. We already know Tobiah is a liar because he said, Nehemiah is with Sambalot. Tobiah is actually the one that came up with a little poem. You're going to build the walls and if the foxes ran on it, they'd all fall down. Tobiah is the guy that participated with Sambalot and said, we're going to write a letter to the king and they're going to come kill you. Tobiah was with Sambalot when he said, we're going to raise an army and come kill you. This dude is a liar. He, is a, he makes threats, empty threats that he can't even fulfill. That's who he is by character. That's who he is by deed. But these guys want to come back to Nehemiah and say, look at all the good deeds. So maybe he did good deeds, maybe he didn't. Let's just assume for sake of argument that he actually had done some good deeds. He had fed the poor. He had, he had sent the money to buy food. He um, had, had sent some materials for them to build the city walls. We don't know what it might be, what good deeds this guy could have done. But let's just assume he has done some good deeds. He is like the magician constantly saying, hey guys, look over here, look over here, don't pay attention while I'm stabbing somebody over here. And so that's where they look. You go up to little children, you know, there's that sweet spot when um, kind of preschool, kindergarten, usually by first grade, they, they, they've been tricked enough. But in that sweet spot, man, you can pull quarters from behind the ears, separate thumbs, and take their noses. And it's fun. Right? I get this one, I can snatch my eyeball, stick it in my mouth, roll it around, swallow it, and then spit it back out and pop my eye back in. Kids are like, what? It's wonderful because they think you're cool and amazing. You really don't even have to do much. Maybe you've seen the videos of people tricking their dogs where their dogs are sitting there and they hold a blanket and they throw the blanket up and they run out of the frame. And the dog's like, what in the world? It's hilarious. It's look over here. It's misdirection. It's look over here, but, but this is who I think they are. This is who I know them to be. Look at Tobiah and his good deeds. On top of this, he named his son Jehohanan. Do you know what that word means? The Lord has shown mercy. Tobiah does good deeds and he acts like he follows God, but he only wants to follow God on his own terms. He doesn't want to repent of his sin. He doesn't want to begin following the law. He doesn't want to own who he is. He wants to be an Ammonite and a God follower because it's getting in business connections and he's getting marriage out of it. 
And so he wants to say all the right things, pretend all the right ways, and keep on going. Now, here, I think, is what's fascinating in this moment. And I think this is a good moment to pause and say this. We are all, every one of us in this room, just as susceptible as these nobles. And none of us believe it. It's our human nature. It's confirmation bias. We all tend to think we're smarter than what we are, more discerning than what we are, and we would never be duped by this. But can I just argue with you in a moment, maybe your internal um, apologist? When God, when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me, how many of the disciples said, no kidding, it's Judas? None of them. Are you prepared then this morning to say, I'm actually more discerning and insightful than Peter, John, Matthew? I'm actually more clued in. I would never have been duped. I don't think so. Later on, they, Diatrophes becomes a member because the apostles and elders are convinced he must be a believer so he's baptized, he joined the church, and then later he proves that he's actually not. He's in it for himself. I've looked at emails from my, my mom, my in-laws, um, scam emails. Look, none of them have given money to the Nigerian prince. But I have seen some phishing emails, P-H-I-S-H-I-N-G, that are unbelievable. I mean, I got one from PayPal. And I'm like, what is this? And it's actually someone uses PayPal to send you a bill. If you click on the link, you, you're like, you pay it. And I mean, this was legit in the sense it's through PayPal. Anybody can get duped. Now, here's what's funny. In this moment, even in this moment, I want to be very quick to tell you, but I didn't give the money to it. Why does my heart want to tell you that that quickly? Because there's a shame in being deceived. And so part of what we do in that shame is we chase bad money with good money. We, the cost seems too high to go back on what we've said or done. And so we sell it even harder. That's what these guys are doing. They're, everybody in the city knew who Tobiah was, but they got to sell his good works. And so how do you do that? The only way to do that is to misdirection. Let's focus on all the good that he's doing. But can he really be that bad if he's doing all these good things? If Tobiah is willing to be so upset about the city walls, but still be my friend and still do good, do good things, then what's the big deal? And that leads us to the next way that they are deceived. They minimize the sin. They ignore his evil threats that he's making. Verse 19, they spoke of his good deeds in my presence. They reported my words to him. And Tobias sent letters to make me afraid. I don't know what other kind of letters you can write than threatening ones if they're going to make you afraid. Tobias has never stopped his letter writing campaign. He has never stopped his efforts to terrify Nehemiah and to hurt him. Now, I just want to point something out. Was Tobiah writing threatening letters 
to his family and friends that lived in Jerusalem? No. He's writing them business letters. But he is writing threatening letters to Nehemiah. That should make you pause and wonder why. When we look at people that are opposed to Christ, there comes this penultimate moment that beforehand Peter understood what it would mean to not have Jesus' back, didn't he? Because what's he say? Man, I'll die with you. He understood that if people are opposed and they want to kill Jesus, Jesus doesn't deserve it, and I'm Jesus' friend, so I, so I should stand with him. But does he stand with him? No, he can't even pray with him. He falls asleep. He is willing for that to be Jesus' fight. These guys are willing for this to be a Nehemiah problem, and they minimize the sin and the wickedness of it. They are deceived. You know, we have something in the New Testament that's called church discipline. The whole church is told to relate to a disciplined person as though they are lost. What does that mean? Love them? Yes. Give them the gospel? Yes. But by all means, do not comfort them in their sin and act like it hasn't happened. We're told in Titus 3, 10 through 11, that having warned a divisive person once or twice, don't have anything more to do with them. We're told in Romans 16, 18, that we're to avoid divisive people because they're all about themselves and they hurt non-discerning people. Maybe their good seems that way, they're bad though. Maybe there's a fear of losing relationship. Maybe we're tempted to think it's just a personality issue or we minimize their sin altogether. It's actually very easy for every one of us in this room to fall into the same trap as these nobles. Nehemiah, though, responds radically different. And so what are the discernment tactics or strategy that Nehemiah used? And he does a few critical things here to help minimize the threat. First of all, Nehemiah sees the threat for what it is. He's not duped by this strategy of Tobiah. He knows about the letters going back and forth. He knows that these people near him are passing information. Nehemiah knows that this is destructive, and this is the plan of the enemy. And so Nehemiah, he sees the threat right off the bat. Secondarily, Nehemiah knows that the real risk is having people in leadership that lack discernment. It's like having the fox guard the hen house. And so if you see it in chapter 7, what does he do? After the walls are built, go to verse 2. He says, his brother Hanani and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. Nehemiah knew that at the core, he needed other leaders who were charged with protecting other people who were more afraid of God than they were of Tobiah. And specifically, more afraid of God than losing friendship with Tobiah. He wanted people that were faithful and God-fearing. And so that's what he went looking for. Not for people that had money, not for people that had position, not for people that had influence, not for the most talented, not for the most gifted. He looked for people that were sold out and following after God more than anything else. He knew the only way to protect people, listen, the only way to keep the sheep safe is to put the rod and the staff in the hand of a shepherd. 
And they can't be some loser false shepherd like we see the shepherds of Israel who would rather eat and kill the sheep than they would protect them. He wanted other people that would lay their lives down for the sheep. What that means is I'm willing to die for you. That's what he's looking for. Jesus makes it very clear that greater love had no man than this, that he would die for his friends. And then he says, you are my friends if you do what I tell you. Nehemiah gets this 500 years before Jesus ever even shows up on planet Earth physically. He understands that the only way to defeat this kind of insidious evil is to have people that will have enough discernment to see it for what it is and call it out. Thirdly, thirdly, he works for their safety in spite of them. This is like, you ever seen a mom or dad chasing a toddler across a parking lot? Man, I have been there. You know, I, I remember being at the mall one time, and I saw this kid, and the kid like took off. Bing! Wasn't my kid, it was somebody else's kid. That's why I'm telling stories on. They just took off. Nobody I knew. And the kid made it, I don't know, five, six feet. And was like, Whoa! because the parents had one of those like harnesses on them. Like hooked to a leash. Ting. I'm not judging the parent. All I'm saying is they understood, I'm either going to have my kid under control, or I'm going to chase this child every which way all the time. And in a public space like that, I can't keep my kids safe. Because kids are naive and gullible and foolish. There's a particular word I'm choosing not to use here. Stupid. And I'm choosing not to use that word because it's really hard to get anyone to understand that you are prone to deception if we use that word because it's attached to the shame of it. But is it possible for you to be naive? Is it possible for you to misread a threat? Is it possible for you to not understand the danger? And so Nehemiah has guards placed at the city gates. And the, the phrasing there in verse 3 says, be open until the sun is hot. It's, it's one of those, it's a, it's a strange Hebrew phrase. This is not normal for how they would keep time. And so you could translate either as until dusk or in the middle of the day. And so really it could be either one. If it's the middle of the day, it probably references almost kind of a, the, best, the best way we could attach to it is a siesta kind of moment in the afternoon when everybody's kind of resting after a midday meal. So it could be that. But it could also be at dusk when everybody's starting to go back to their homes and the city's not busy. Both of those would be prime times for attack. We're not sure which one it is. ESV chooses this one. Some other translations choose the other. doesn't really matter. The point is this. Make sure there's guards there and the city's locked down and safe when we're most prone to attack. That's the point. While they're still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts, and some in front of their own homes. These people think that the threat is done largely, but he understood you could shut all the gates, but as long as you've got Tobiah wielding this kind of influence on the inside and people that lack discernment, you're going to have a problem. You're still under just as much threat. Who would necessarily, what's to say that these guys wouldn't just go and crack the door open for Tobiah and let him and an army in? These are positive steps that Nehemiah takes. 
But there are also things he doesn't do. He doesn't seek the approval of Tobiah or these nobles. He doesn't care. I love this about Nehemiah. He doesn't care what Tobiah says. He's not, Tobiah's like, look over here at my good deeds. Nehemiah's over here like, you oppose the glory of God. I'm not interested. You can feed, you can clothe, you can put on a buffet for the impoverished. Great, because guess what? God can work through wicked people too. He can plunder the riches of Egypt to, to, to make out the glory of God in the temple through their gold. Fine, whatever. That doesn't change the fact, fact you are opposed to God. I'm not duped by your nonsense. And so he recognizes that he's a threat. And so he doesn't seek the approval of Tobiah or these nobles. He resists the fear of personal risk to himself. Tobiah keeps writing these letters. Man, I'm going to do this to you, and I'm going to do this to you, and this is going to happen to you. And Nehemiah, I can just imagine Nehemiah be like, anyway, did we get enough blocks over there where we're trying to fortify those? There's another letter from Tobiah. Great. So, by the way, I was thinking about the best way to work the commerce on the side. He just keeps moving forward. Can you imagine how annoyed the nobles were at this? Nehemiah, we have this wonderful man out here. He's a merchant. Several of us are in business with him. Um, um, my, he's, he's actually grandpa. We're, we're grandpas together, and um, he's an amazing grandpa. He, he does a wonderful job. He's uncle to my niece. He's, this guy is amazing. You know, you know, Nehemiah, he didn't like the building of the walls, but he's on the same page. If you could just heal the wounds, everything will be wonderful. Nehemiah is not driven for a Tobiah's approval or the noble's approval. He's on mission for an audience of one. He doesn't assume that just because some of these guys have done good things like giving back money or helping to build the walls that it means that they're trustworthy or safe. He understands these nobles help to build the external walls, but very clearly they lack discernment. So they're not completely trustworthy. Proverbs 22.3, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. What's so always fascinating me about that verse is that they both see the danger. One acts and the other doesn't. How do we, how do we handle that verse when we're talking about the fact that sometimes there are people that are dangerous. Tobiah is dangerous. We have these like seemingly, seemingly harsh commands to not have anything to do with people like this. Avoid them. Have nothing to do with them. You're so mean. Nehemiah is not driven to please anyone but God. Jesus has no problem rebuking the insidious evil of the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day. One of the things, again, that I think is fascinating about American Christianity is everybody's excited about how well Jesus does at condemning religious hypocrisy. In other words, people who claim to follow God, but they aren't. But they sure enough don't want to do it themselves. Because that's going to cost them. 
Look, you, you can't get excited about Jesus on two separate occasions cleansing the temple. Don't you dare be excited about that Jesus if you're not willing to deal with it in your own life or in the lives of others. Nehemiah is. Jesus consistently stands for, protects, and provides for the weak, the sick, and the vulnerable. When his own friend Peter tells him don't go to Jerusalem, Jesus sees it for what it is and rebukes Peter for advancing what Satan would want. A discerning leader sees the danger of invasive evil and responds to the danger. The tactics of the leader revolve around fearing God and being faithful to God. They aren't driven by self-preservation. They aren't driven by honor and respect from others or by fear. Love for God drives them, and it comes out of them as courage to deal with evil and not be swept up by it. Discerning leaders know and love God most. And so they see as an obligation and responsibility to love the people that God has them leading. You know, there's a job, there's lots of jobs I would never want. Roofing. <laughs> Parole board. I don't want that one. To have people that have been convicted at times of horrible crimes and me to try to sift through the detritus of the fact that now they've completed a high school diploma and gone through counseling and worked in the shop in prison, can they be let back into society? I just frankly look at that job and I'm like, I don't have the wisdom for that. I don't have the discernment for that. How do I have discernment? How do I have discernment in spiritual context to understand that the greatest risk in my home is my flesh? My flesh. The greatest risk, contrary to what I heard growing up, the greatest risk in my home is not the radio or TV. It's me. How do I work through it? Well, can I just call you then that if you're really going to have discernment, you've got to feel it and you've got to see it. What's shocking here is the playing with fire that the nobles are doing. So Nehemiah gives us the context and the background to help us understand. And yet I hope that you're just as mystified by the behavior of these nobles as I am. I just, when I read it, I'm like, like literally, I want to say, like, are you an idiot? Like, what are you thinking? Even while I want to acknowledge my own foolish heart could easily be deceived. Well, this is really, really important. They're not stupid. These guys are not, they don't lack intelligence. They wouldn't take an IQ test and test incredibly low. What they lack is discernment. That's what they lack. It's not intellectual ability. It's a spiritual capacity to understand the difference between righteousness and evil. It's not the same thing. They are deceived by things like relational connection, claims of religion, and good works. You know, God has actually built us with a remarkable biological system to detect and respond to danger. This is a Swiss researcher, Edouard Caperday, great name, isn't it? In the early 1900s, he was trying to understand the way memory works in people. And so he had a test patient who was a 48-year-old woman who, as a result of some, we would call it traumatic brain injury today, she had completely lost all short-term memory. Gone. Completely. Completely gone. 
And so she met with him on a routine basis. Every time she met with him, it was like the first time she'd ever met him. That's how gone we're talking here. She needed constant care all the time, all the time over everything. And so there came a moment as Edward Clapperday, and I don't obviously advocate the scientific method, but this is what he did. One day he went to meet her, and as she stuck out her hand to meet him, as though meeting him for the first day, hello, Dr. Clapperday, he stuck her hand with a pen. That just seems mean and wrong, because it is. She pulled back immediately. She had a pinprick of blood in her hand. She was hurt. Within five minutes, she had no recollection of this. Guess what she did every day from that time forward when she went to meet him? He would stick out his hand, she would go to put her hand back, and then she'd pull it back. And researchers began to discover something in the early 1900s that we only even understand more now. And that is this, that memories are not wired just in one part of the brain. Get this now, emotional reaction, particularly associated with pain, develops deep memories that we don't even remember that we have. This is what explains there was one girl. She was a mid-teenager. I don't remember the exact age. I feel like it was around 14 years of age. One day in her home, her parents, uh, there was a loud bang outside. It actually had been a gas explosion some blocks away. And they, they went to just check everybody in the house. And then went to her bedroom. She was laying on the floor in a catatonic state. So immediately they rush to the hospital. They can't figure out what's going on. And it was only after the fact that she's meeting with doctors, scientists trying to figure out what's going on, that, that they're asking just her life history. When she was only about one year of age, not quite one, she hadn't been completely weaned. Her mother was nursing her one day. There had been a loud bang outside. It had been a car wreck. Her mother, in her moment of fright, had actually dropped her on the floor. She had hit the floor, and she had rolled under the dresser there, and they couldn't find her. They finally found her. And they were like, is it possible that this almost one-year-old had registered this deep memory so that when a process was repeated that was very similar, she had gone back to that state? So guess what they did? They repeated the experiment, and guess what happened? She went catatonic. They understood that memories, experiences, and this is actually the way God has made our brains, is that we wire and we remember things best when they're attached to an emotional reaction. So here's the problem, that, that lady, that Edward Clapp, Dr. Clapperday, he didn't even understand. He didn't think of the long-term consequence of this. Guess what? That woman never wanted to shake anybody's hand anymore because she had the feeling memory, but she lacked the logic memory to know why or who was safe to shake their hand and who wasn't. This is actually part of the groundwork of why, the way we understand PTSD. This is why you can have somebody go off to war and they come back, and 4th of July is a nightmare. They're harmless fireworks, but to them, it's combat. It's the same kind of thing. And even in their reasoning, they're telling myself, I shouldn't feel this way. As their heart rate gets elevated, they have an anxiety attack, a panic attack, and they're trying to process through this because it all seems to associate. Here is what I'm telling you. God has hardwired our brains, and I can actually make application this morning. If you're actually going to build discernment, you need the sting of it, and you need the logic of it. Discernment should be the normal course for every believer. How do we feel it and how do we see it? Well, I think there's two passages I can point to in Hebrews. First of all, in Hebrews 12, here's some sting. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Really quickly, two words that matter a lot in that passage, discipline and chastise. Discipline is like an alarm clock. It hurts a little bit. God has made these birds that live around us that imitate sounds. Like I heard a bird recently near our house and I thought somebody's cell phone was ringing. It sounded just like a cell phone. Have you, have you seen these? It's like, what is going on? And, and so some of them, they imitate alarms. I had a day recently where I was supposed to be able to sleep in. Saturday morning, this thing is going up and it sounds just like an alarm. I'm like, oh, it's like PTSD over my alarm. That's discipline. It's, it's just the steady measure. It's when you're trying to learn how to write your letters as a child and the teacher says, nope, circles this in red, this in red, you got to fix this. Discipline, it's correction, it's instruction. As believers, we need to be instructed and God is instructing us, he's teaching us. Frankly, for some of us this morning, this, this message is discipline. It's a little bit of corrective. It's, it's not harsh on you. It, it doesn't cause pain for you. There's a little bit of sting to it. He's like, oh, maybe I've erred a little bit. Let me shove me back where I'm supposed to go. It's a rumble strip on the side of the road chastening there is the same word used for the scourging of jesus that hurts one of the ways you learn discernment as a believer if i can put it this way is by messing up you learn more from your failures than you do from your successes you start giving of yourself to something and it's and it's ecclesiastes just a fun thing in life a gift of god but then over time it becomes an idol and it starts to consume time and resources and effort and energy and mental capacity and then there starts to be the sting of it because it starts to cost you in other areas of your life and the sting of it helps remind you of where you should be living what you should be doing sometimes we feel the sting when we uh, we face a situation a decision a relational connection and we mess up but there's another way you'll experience the sting in John 15, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Sometimes we receive sting because we've erred. Sometimes we get stung because we're standing with Jesus. And it teaches you. What do you think would have happened to the nobles' relationship with Tobiah if they had said, we're cutting off business contact with you, we're not doing family gatherings with you because you're an unrepentant enemy of God. You think Tobiah is still writing them nice letters? Not a chance. Not a chance. The reason they were able to stay on the good side of Tobiah was not because this was a personality disagreement with Nehemiah and Tobiah, and they were much more kind and calm people. The reason they were able to stay, on the, stay connected to Tobiah is because they refused to stand on God's side. There's a sting by following Christ. I guarantee you when you stand with Christ, you'll get some hatred and it's going to sting. And I think we know it. And I think we're scared of it. Because none of us like hurt. But if we're going to grow in discernment, if we're going to begin to understand where is real danger and where isn't it, we would totally look at that lady and say, Dr. Clapardet is not one that you can ever trust to shake his hand again. Because he hurt you. But the nurse in his office isn't, and you can shake her hand. And the man on the street who greets you, you can shake his hand. 
And so the sting only is helpful if you can actually apply the reasoning to help you understand it. And so I think we also need the logic of discernment. Hebrews 5 says it this way, about this we have much to say. It's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Boy, you really can't miss that emphasis, right? That inference, excuse me. You're like a baby when you should be a grown-up. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now I want to go back and just unpack this takeaway phrase. Spiritual discernment is a learned skill. Do you notice that it's the powers of discernment trained by constant practice? You could be very old in the faith and lack discernment because you haven't practiced it. It's more than just knowing. It's doing. And I'm convinced it's because part of the doing, you'll experience the, experience the sting of it, and it'll teach you. It'll drive it deeper in your heart. You'll understand, oh, that's why God says this. Okay, I get it now. Because it's a learned practice that tells you that sometimes we're going to get it wrong. We're going to get it wrong sometimes. It's just the way it is. But we learn it over time. And it's a learned skill grown out of the practice of knowing because the only way we know it is based on the word. Can I just tell you, spiritual discernment is not a sixth sense or mother's intuition or spidey sense tingling. It isn't. I just have a bad feeling about that person. Take your feeling, run it through the Bible, and then operate in love. <laughs> I had a lady over 20 years ago, she said, I, God has given me the gift of spiritual discernment. I can just look at a person and know. I can tell you what was going off in my head. Really? I didn't know the Trinity now had four people. Because I'm pretty sure man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. And I want to filter it through the word. And what's ironic is the person she seemingly had this spiritual discernment about still knows and follows Jesus faithfully, and she has long since abandoned the faith. She was an authority to herself. It's based on knowledge, but it's based on loving God. Now, why do I say loving God? Because we obey God because we love him. Tim Challies defines spiritual discernment this way. It's the skill of understanding and applying God's word with the purpose of separating truth from error and right from wrong. Nehemiah has personally felt the sting of siding with God against Tobiah. Nehemiah has processed that building the walls isn't about making money or even ultimately about safety, it's about God's reputation of faithfulness. He is not deceived by Tobiah's religiosity, good works, or relationships. He sees Tobiah for who he is. How can we grow in discernment? There will be sting, and there will be reasoning. Sting because we get it wrong sometimes, and sting because sometimes we get it right. Reasoning because we will grow in our understanding of the word and of life. We grow discernment as we know God's word better and we love God and obey him. Now, lest you fret very much for how does this happen, Hebrews is actually assuming that it happens. It's a normal course of event. 
I was reading about a lady, she has primordial dwarfism. She is in her mid-20s, but she's only 18 inches tall. Now that's not, and I'm not being, that's not normal. That's a genetic abnormality as a result of that we live in a sin-fallen world. And I don't mean that means she sins or God has done this to her. That's not what I mean, but we live in a sin-fallen world where DNA and genes are messed up and we long, creation groans for the return of Christ, right? We get that, but that's not normal. If your child wasn't growing, my niece, she's just at the doctor's, her, my, my sister was like, yeah, they're saying Kamala might be 5'10 because she's in such and such percentile on the growth chart. What's the growth chart? It's a chart that you just measure kids by. And you say, this is the normal grow, average growth pattern. That normal growth for a believer is to grow discerning. There's one thing that holds you back, laziness. That word dull of hearing means slothful of hearing. If you just follow God faithfully, read his word clearly, and apply it, you'll grow in discernment. You will. You will. Take the situation. I'll, make, I'll try to boil it down to very, one simple phrase. If you're like, man, I, but where do I start, Steve? Take the situations of your life. Just choose a relationship because that's the problem here. Choose a relationship. Pour it through scripture. How does God call me to see, understand, and respond to this person? And I'm going to do it. Boom, you'll grow in discernment. You will. How can I love God and others most in this situation? Because sometimes loving God and them most means rebuking someone. Answer a fool according to their folly, lest they be convinced in their own mind. Sometimes loving God and loving a person most means you don't rebuke them. Rebuke not a fool according to their folly, lest you be like them. It's a mudslinging war. You're like, what? See, Steve, that's hard. How would I know? You're going to get stung, and you're going to learn. Now, I just want to close with one last thing. Who built this system? God did. So do you think he's mad at us when we're trying to learn this process? Nope. Not at all. No more than you being angry at your child trying to teach them how to tie their shoes. No more than you should be angry at your kid when you're trying to teach them how to drive, even though your life is flashing before your eyes. Or you're trying to teach them how to paint, or work on a car, or cook, or knit something, or do a craft, or mow the grass. It's learned. Your father isn't angry with you, friend. He's not. He does call you to discernment because what's at real risk is you and those around you. And I call you to this journey under a gracious, patient dad. We've all gotten it wrong, and we'll all get it wrong in the future. May we grow, though, in knowing and loving God so that we grow in spiritual discernment.